This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about the weather. All across the country, the weather lately has been crazy weird. While the east was slammed this winter with massive snowstorms and biting cold temperatures, the west experienced searing droughts and was unseasonably warm. The weather is running hot and cold. Is this just a freakish spell, or is it a sign of climate change driven by burning fossil fuels? On the show today, we will explore the link between weather, climate, and fossil fuels, and more. With our audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we will also talk about what people and governments can do to understand and prepare for weather whiplash. We're joined by three guests. Louise Bedsworth is Deputy Director at Governor Brown's Office of Planning and Research. She has a PhD in Energy and Resources from UC Berkeley. Hunter Cutting is Director of Strategic Communications at Climate Nexus, a nonprofit communications firm focused on climate. And Kathy Sullivan runs the weather for President Obama (laughs) as administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She holds a PhD in geology from Dalhousie University in Canada. Dr. Sullivan was one of the first of six women selected to be an astronaut in 1978 and holds the distinction of being the first American woman to walk in space. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Kathy Sullivan, let's look back at the last, say, 10 years or so of weather. We know that 2014 was the hottest year on record. Put us in perspective. uh, What's going on with all this really hot and really cold? Well, the big picture is that the the chemistry of the atmosphere is clearly changing. Uh, Carbon dioxide is rising. That's been an actual physical measurement. Grab some air from the top of a big volcano, Mauna Loa, take it to the lab, measure it. That goes back decades. So that's just an actual measured curve uh, of carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. The physics of what that will result in are very clear, and they've been known for 60 or 70 years. Uh, Carbon dioxide is one of the heat-trapping gases that accentuates, heightens the greenhouse effect that makes our planet livable. So the atmosphere is getting warmer. More heat is stored in the atmosphere. And those physics are pretty clear, too. When you put more heat in the atmosphere can bring in more moisture, you have more power, more latent power in the atmosphere. And the bell curve of what we would consider normal weather for any given place shifts to a warmer, the average shifts to a warmer point. That means a couple of things. You see more extreme weather, the category of weather that's in what you consider extreme is, is more abundant, they're more frequent events, and they're more intense events. So the physics that you would expect would predict you'll see higher hot temperatures, you'll see more persistent hot periods, you'll see fewer extreme cold temperatures, and indeed the statistics show that. Uh, You'll see warmer nighttime lows, and indeed the statistics show that, uh, and and onward and onward. So in in part what you're seeing is the patterns we've been used to don't match up anymore with what's the new normal in this 
hotter than before atmosphere. And it you know, wreaks a little bit of havoc with our, our nice, easy expectations of, you know, October is, March is always like so-and-so in San Francisco. In the cooler atmosphere of before, but it's going to be different with more heat-trapping capability in the atmosphere. And you're one of the few Americans who've actually been up in that atmosphere. So how does having walked in space affect your influence, <laughs> the way you look at this? Because you're one of the few people who've actually, with that famous, uh, was it Earthrise photograph uh, that really changed the way humans looked at Earth, came from astronauts in the late 60s? In the 60s and 70s, yeah. Mm. Um, I'm just a lowly space shuttle astronaut, so unfortunately we didn't get as far away as the guys that got the great Earthrise <laughs> pictures. The okay. shuttle uh, orbits the Earth in the two or 300-mile uh, altitude range. It's above most of what we consider to be the atmosphere. Um, I, two things I would say. One is, you know, down here walking around on the dirt, we tend to see the atmosphere, and the, the sky is immense. The atmosphere seems huge. Think of the metaphors in literature, the ocean of air above us. When you get even a couple hundred miles away and look back at the planet, you get a really different sense of proportion. And the atmosphere that everything alive on Earth depends upon looks a lot more like the fuzz on a tennis ball than it does look like than some thick rind on a grapefruit or something. It's remarkably thin. And you can see very elegant stratification within it as you watch the sun rise or set behind it. So you know, I got a very different sense of uh, the, the thin little membrane of air. It's a little fluid membrane that envelops this ball of dirt and makes it habitable. It's very elegantly and finely structured. It's got a sort of a precision to how it all works. And clearly that, the chemistry of that at least, is being altered. The second impact on me uh, really was just a personal motivation one. It was so incredible to get to see that myself and have that view and take those pictures. And I just found... It was never going to be enough for me to just come home and be able to show cool vacation pictures from space. <laughs> I somehow wanted to take the, the, that power, that perspective, and how it lets us understand this planet and center my professional life around trying to make that capability that we have actually matter and translate into information that we can use every day to conduct our lives more safely or run our businesses more effectively. I would make just one final point because... It's a very profound one, and I think it's worth remembering. We are the first generation of human beings ever in the history of humankind that has the ability to comprehend and measure our planet the way we currently do with satellites and other instrumentation. We can essentially take a snapshot of global conditions, oceanic conditions, atmospheric conditions, and this is what's made it possible for, have the, for us to have the kind of forecasting we have in weather forecasting and in longer range outlooks. Human beings have always craved foresight about what's coming ahead for them and they should be prepared of. And we're the first generation that has any capacity to develop that kind of foresight in substantive, scientifically sound, actionable ways. And we're babies in terms of learning how to factor that into our decision making. Aren't we also the first generation to change the biochemistry of the planet on a global scale? And so when someone says, how do I know that this huge uh, snowstorm in Boston is related to climate change? Or is the California drought related to climate change? What do you say, Kathy Sullivan? Well, it's an exceedingly complex system. Uh, it's a little bit, my best metaphor for this is it's a little bit like dissecting what happened in an, in an airline accident. So there's always a chain of events that led up to the, atmosphere, to the, the accident. 
and the temptation to want to say, well, if that one had been a little different, or that one, it, you know, the, the outcome is a consequence of a whole chain of events. That's just being metaphorical, but to take any given storm or any single event and say that is specifically because of just the chemistry, it's because of the dynamics of the atmosphere. The odds, the odds of severe events, the odds of intense events, the odds of higher temperatures, uh, warmer overnight lows, those odds unequivocally all go up globally as you put uh, heat into the extra heat into the atmosphere. And how that will translate out by latitude and by region, by proximity to the ocean, by microclimate and topography, that's going to continue to be very complex. So to take some event in the Russian River drainage and some event in Santa Cruz and say, bingo, that's one for one, is just, you know, it's not that linear a system. That's our linear thinking, but that's not how the planet behaves. Sometimes people use the metaphor of uh, baseball players and steroids and home runs. We know that you, know, you can't say that that Barry Bonds home run was because of steroids, but we know that over you know, some of those 700 and so uh, <laughs> home runs, there was some juicing going on in there uh, that had an influence. Louise Bedsworth, uh, what can we expect in California? You look statewide for Governor Brown. What is the state looking for in terms of impacts on climate in California now and going forward? Well, I think we know several things um, from the projections that we've been able to do. We know temperatures are going to warm. It depends on the path that emissions take um, and how sensitive the atmosphere is to those emissions. But even under the best-case scenario where globally we successfully reduce emissions, we're going to see some amount of warming in California. We know uh, we'll see more warming in the summer months. Um, and I think probably one of our biggest impacts of concern is going to be the effect on the state's water supply. Uh, we know that precipitation patterns, uh, we are less clear on the amount of precipitation, but we know that the form of that precipitation is going to change. We'll have more precipitation as rain than as snow. Um, so that's going to really impact the state's water supply. Uh, we also know that we'll see more extreme events, uh, more large uh, destructive wildfires, severe droughts, and heat waves. And we've experienced all of those recently, and I think we just know we're going to see more of them in the future. And Hunter Cutting, is weird weather, is that a teachable moment to people when something happens unusual, their garden blossoms differently, or there's some unusual weather? Does that cause people to say, hmm, global warming is happening? Or is it just like, yeah, not, not so much? Well, it, it seems to be. Um, science is not something that gauges a lot of people a lot of the time. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but weather is something that everybody contends with. And so when you try to have a conversation with people about global warming in the abstract, unless they're a political advocate of some stripe, you're just not going to get a lot of traction with everyday people. But if you're having a conversation with people when they're contending with a drought or contending with a heat wave, it, it's, it, a natural question comes up, like, why is this? You know, why is this the third once in 500 year storm we're having on, on the east coast of the United States within 10 years. Um, so they, they do seem to be teachable moments and, and some of the polling data out there suggests that as well. But how long do those teachable moments last? Sometimes it, it snows and people, ah, what this global warming, ha ha ha. You know, Kathy Sullivan, uh, it's getting cold and sometimes that people have trouble uh, sort of squaring cold weather and snowing and even some new record lows with global warming. Isn't it supposed to be linear in one direction? This planet is not linear. This is a very <laughs> complex set of interlocking dynamic systems and it's, it's natural human. We are linear. We make simple linear mental models to deal with the world around us and we all have a penchant uh, to try to apply those and fit 
what we're experiencing in the world into nice, simple, linear models. So that instinct is there, and that habit pattern uh, is certainly there. But you know, a, a cold day, a down day in the stock market does not belie a net bull market trend if you look far enough back. You know, we know it at the shore when you see some low waves and you know there's a longer surf beat coming in, a bigger... You have to watch over, observe over the right interval of time to really get your, the full picture of the phenomena that you're looking at. Your comment about, you know, there are more really cold days statistically actually isn't true. There are increasingly... The number of extremely cold days, as you would expect from what the physics tell you to expect, the number of extremely deep lows, low temperatures, is going down as the heat of the atmosphere builds up. So explain for us, hot air holds more moisture. So what does that mean for more air, more moisture circulating, and how does that manifest in storms? So the energy that drives weather in our planet is the heat coming in from the sun, uh, the moisture content uh, of the atmosphere, and obviously the rotation of the earth and all of the swirling that that introduces. So we're, you know, we're dialing up the extra heat in the atmosphere. This is, this is kitchen table science, right? This is stovetop science. Uh, when you heat up the water, relative humidity in a hot atmosphere can be much higher than in a cooler, drier atmosphere. So it's kitchen, it's really stovetop science working on the, the planetary scale. The energy content of the atmosphere, what makes our weather systems dynamic, is the heat and the moisture content of the atmosphere. Dial one up, you're going to have a more energetic atmosphere. We have all these terms that have come into the common language recently with uh, uh, the polar vortex, atmospheric rivers, the ridiculously resistant ridge, which is pushing <laughs> rain up to Canada and stopping rain from coming into, into California. Uh, Hunter Cutting, you know, how does that play out in terms of this new vernacular, this new language of, of, uh, of weather in, in terms of popular realization of what's happening? Well, as we were just talking about earlier, it's, it's an entry point to the conversation, right? It's a way that people enter the climate change conversation that they don't get into otherwise. Um, we have the Weather Channel naming winter storms now. Um, and it builds a story. If you give something a name, um, it's a character in a story. And we're a tribal species. We communicate by telling stories. Um, scientists work with numbers and formulas. Average folks tell stories. So they need a name for that storm so they can tell a story about that storm. And then that story can be expanded, talk about what caused the storm, what changed the odds of the storm happening. And that's how you can bring uh, climate change into the conversation. So Kathy Sullivan, is there now a business incentive for promoting severe weather? Are people making money off of this? Is there like ratings involved and sort of, so I heard the term the other day, weather porn, which is like the idea of like what happens after a disaster, hurricane, et cetera. Is there now sort of a business incentive to, to uh, exaggerate perhaps severe weather? CNN has a severe weather center, right? That tells you something. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we do, we do the total business of weather communication in a pretty unique way in the United States. NOAA's responsibility is to gather the foundational observations. No one can make a forecast without them. We actually gather them from countries all around the planet because you cannot make a forecast for anywhere in the United States that's more than two days long unless you've got measurements from the entire globe. So there's a tremendous international exchange of that foundational information. So global forecasts are possible. And we put a certain set of basic forecast products out. And then we stop. We work directly with uh, public sector managers, folks like governor's offices, state emergency managers, 
But the rest of carrying that information to all of you as, as viewers of the general public, uh, providing it to the agribusiness firms in the Central Valley or to the wine growers in Russian River or to the airline companies, that's a, an entrepreneurial space. That's a, in our country, that's a private sector enterprise. And we think of the weather enterprise as being both the public and the private elements together. So the short answer with that backdrop is, yes, you've got commercial companies uh, vying for market share. You have broadcasters vying for viewer loyalty. And, and they know from their polling and audience studies that the weather broadcaster is, is one of the loyalty points because of just what, what Hunter said. They, this is a natural tie point. Everyone's got this kind of interest point. So, yeah, they want to draw your attention. They want to make sure you look back again frequently. Uh, check, keep it being in the news. Keep it coming back. You, Nate Silver has pointed out if you look at the, um, the way they express the weather to you, they actually slant the results if it's generally benign weather and low probability occurrences, the broadcast community will slant the results in a way that think, they think helps you better manage your expectations. Uh, you're going to be madder at them if they didn't tell you to take your umbrella and you got <laughs> wet than if they told you it would be a good idea to take your umbrella and you didn't get wet. You'll be happy that they had you prepared and grateful that you didn't get wet. So they'll give you, whereas we might put out 25% chance of rain, they'll put out 30 or 35 to manage those expectations. When the consequence of the weather gets more severe, tornadic outbreak or hurricanes, or the probabilities get high enough, then their broadcasts come right back to uh, holding true to what the NOAA data are saying. Yeah, there's definitely managing expectations and ratings. <laughs> and speaking of sort of bias towards being cautious or conservative, we saw recently that in the Northeast, some big storms came in, Louise Bedsworth, and uh, governors said, well, we didn't warn people enough last time. We're really going to warn them this time. And then it, the storm wasn't as bad as people predicted it. And people said, oh, mad at the governor. You hyped it. I could have gone driving, et cetera. So how does California deal with sort of managing that in terms of how much to alarm people, but also being prudent? Right. Well, when it comes to day-to-day -day weather, a lot of that will often end up at a local level. I mean, I think we had large storms in December, and we saw a lot of reaction um, mm -hmm. in California preparing for that atmospheric river event. Um, and, you know, I think where we come in at the state level is really um, helping communities to prepare for events that are, are coming, either in the very near term or over the long term as we look over a climate change horizon. Um, and then, of course, working on recovery and response after an event um, and thinking about, um, of course, getting immediately back on your feet afterwards, but then also the long term building resilience into your recovery and you know, moving forward. And so I think that's a lot where we at the state level come in, which is really how to get the tools out to help you prepare guidance, information, um, technical assistance, and then, you know, to help after the fact as well. One of the biggest uh, events, severe weather events uh, in California recently was the Rim Fire. Uh, you know, the, the mm -hmm. electricity in San Francisco was at risk, a lot of damage. Uh, Louise Bedsworth, what has California learned from the Rim Fire and how is it uh, in terms of planning for the future and how is it affecting the people still up there? Right. So the Rim Fire happened in 2013. It started right before Labor Day weekend um, and it burned uh, over 250,000 acres. It's the third largest wildfire in history in it, uh, of the state. And um, it burned for two months. So you can imagine the impacts from that were tremendous in terms of loss to tourism and recreation businesses up in the region. 
uh, right near Yosemite National Park. Um, to the schools closed on a number of days because of smoke impact. Smoke impacts were felt as far away as Montana. Um, so the event itself was am- amazingly damaging to the economy and the environment up there. And if you go up there now, uh, you can see just these barren hillsides um, that used to be covered in trees. And so we've been working very closely with the community up in Tuolumne County where the fire occurred to think about how do we build a partnership to recover from that fire, um, but that also joins together much of the land that burned was owned by the U.S. Forest Service and National Park Service, and then some a little bit of private land, but mostly it was federal land. So how do we build a partnership that can create um, economic resilience in that community, help their businesses withstand those types of events, can help us manage our forests in a more sustainable way to minimize the risk of the large destructive fires that can also help us capture more water in our watersheds, um, prevent downstream impacts uh, from into water quality and, and other things. And so we've been working very closely with them. And it's tremendous the work that's going on up there already on its own. And then you know, the state is able to be working with them to try to bring it to fruition, actually, in response to a federal program, which is the National Disaster Resilience Competition. Um, and so it's been, it, it's really interesting. I think it has really spurred um, putting into action things we've known we'd need to do for decades. Uh, people have known we need to manage our forests in certain ways to maximize um, the benefits that we have received from them, particularly in California, water, critical. Um, you know, and so what we're actually doing now is Let's figure out how we do this. How do we put it in, into play on the ground, working with our private companies, with local businesses, with the Forest Service, the Park Service, um, the California Department of uh, Forestry and Fire Protection, California Environmental Protection Agency, the Resources Agency, the local government. I mean, you name it, people are involved and engaged. So, And one of the consequences is it's hard for homeowners to get property insurance up there. And I want to talk yes. about that and then get to other parts of the country where the insurance industry is starting to say, hey... Sort of sound the alarm on on the risk of living the American dream if it means a nice cabin in the woods or a beachfront property. Mm-hmm. But first, on, on, in Tuolumne, what is the experience with people having difficulty getting property insurance? It is it has become more difficult. I don't think it's unique um, to Tuolumne County. I should say. I mean, the Rim Fire that occurred. Um, all up and down the Sierra Nevada in California. Just the next year in 2014, we had the King Fire. wasn't as large, um, but incredibly destructive fire. I mean, the damage to soils there was tremendous. Um, and so we really have a whole region of our state. It's critical watershed, critical for our state water supply, that is at risk. And so, um, you know, as we look at those communities and what we can do to try to boost resilience. Insurance is a huge problem in all of those communities of how do, you know, how do we take on that risk. And I think there's uh, programs in place that are helping homeowners to take action to build defensible space, to build in fire-safe ways, to work together, um, to assist people who don't have the resources to do it themselves. Um, but it's an ongoing challenge and one I don't think we currently have an answer to, um, but we'll certainly be working on. 
We're talking about weather and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. You just heard from Luis Bedsworth, an advisor to California Governor Jerry Brown. We also have Kathy Sullivan, the administrator of NOAA, and Hunter Cutting with Climate Nexus, a PR firm. Uh, Kathy Sullivan, the number of billion-dollar severe weather events has increased. Critics might say, well, that's obvious because just like uh, box office records, the, the, you know, ticket prices at the cinema go up over time, so there's more property. It's worth more. But how do we know that that there's more uh, economic impact from severe weather? Well, it's true. I mean, there are the value at risk, if you will, is higher as the population grows, as our cities grow, as we build and develop more more areas. Uh, any given natural event has has more in harm's way. So you do mm-hmm. expect the numerical value to go up over time, just even because of those factors. To tease out underneath that whether the statistics of the events, the frequency of certain events is actually going up or the intensity of certain events going up is a more subtle and challenging task. Uh, We maintain at NOAA an analysis called the Climate Extremes Index that aims to do that and it takes a basket of indicators that get at percentage occurrences of precipitation in certain patterns, temperatures in certain patterns and try to look across all of those uh, to, to try to get underneath the symptomology of the insurance dollars and really understand if we're seeing what degree of frequency of change we're seeing in the natural events. Again, everything about the physics of a warming atmosphere tell us we should be expecting to see more events and more extreme events. And you know, things like the Rim Fire, uh, our Forest Service colleagues uh, back in D.C. are working this problem really assiduously they're funded and equipped to deal with a certain amount of wildfire per year, and we're seeing now like seven times that sort of acreage burning fairly consistently. If you look at the 30-year trailing average, the last couple of years have been five to seven times as much acre, acreage per year burned. So that swamps the response capability of the federal government. And then you get the 1% fires, like the Rim Fire or the, the ones in Colorado a year or so back as well, that... It's, it's rare for a fire to reach that scale, biggest fire ever on record in the state of California. But when it does, the tail of the consequences are so huge. This is another new dimension of the challenges. How do we deal with those infrequent, low likelihood of occurrence, but when they happen, the consequence is so large because the normal preparation and insurance space is about the more likely to occur events. That's valid, but we're seeing, we're exposed to more prospect of long tail events that have maybe a, you know, a 1 in 20 chance of occurring. By the way, you all are twice as likely to get, that's twice as likely as any of you have a likelihood of getting melanoma as Americans. So it's not that distant event. How much attention are we all paying to sun exposure and avoiding melanomas? The 1 in 20 events are twice as likely as that. And we're struggling to figure out how to bring them into our planning and our preparation and our insurance calculations. Great. More to worry about. Aren't you glad you came today? (laughs) Um, um, Downer alert. Right. Greg. We're going to go to our uh, lightning round and ask some quick questions with either yes or no answers or or, uh, fill in the blank. Um, Kathy Sullivan, if you owned a beachfront condo in Florida, you would hold it until when? (laughs) Tomorrow. <laughs> Call your broker. Okay. Uh, L- Louise Bedsworth, if you owned a ski-in, ski-out condo in Lake Tahoe, you would hold it until when? 
A couple more decades. A couple more decades. <laughs> okay. Kathy Sullivan, global warming critics are correct when they say the climate has always been changing. True. We live on a dynamic and variable planet. Uh, Louise Bedsworth, California will be one of the best states to live in as the climate gets weirder. True. Grapes of Wrath, Climate Edition. Okay. Um, Hunter Cutting, as California's Central Valley becomes painfully hot, the state should relax its rules restricting land development along the coast. That's a political question. <laughs> Personal value question. You're an environmentalist. Uh, I, that just seems to be borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. No. Kathy Sullivan, if you wanted to buy a haven to protect your family from climate disruption, where in the United States would it be? (laughs) I would not focus on where I bought the haven so much as how I designed and built the haven. I think there's some prepper of reality TV shows for the... (laughs) um, Hunter Cutting, where in the world would you escape from severe weather? Anywhere in the world, where would you go? Is there a safe haven somewhere? You travel internationally. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a bit of a science question, but my understanding is that uh, the further north you go, the, the greater the, the changes. So uh, south, but you need to... Uh, it's so complicated. You need to avoid the expansion of the Hadley cells where we're having more drought around the middle latitude. So I don't know that there is a good place. I think... Uh, the, International the, Space Station comes yeah. There you go. <laughs> exactly. You get on the list to go to space. Mars. Mars. Mars comes yeah. to Mars. <laughs> get on the list to go to space with Elon Musk, SpaceX sort of thing. Uh, Louise Bedsworth, if you wanted to buy a haven to protect your family from climate disruption, where in California would it be? Wow. I think I'm going to go. I'm going to cop out with that answer, too, and say it's going to be about design and how you build it. Some people would say it's also about the community that you're with and there is no safe place. It's what you need is functioning systems and neighbors who care about you. And it's really more about community than any sort of magical place. Kathy Sullivan. So can we just put a tack on that point because we've all used the word resilience a little bit and Mm -hmm. at least one amplification on that is really valuable to make. That always has to be three strands woven together. It's societal it's economic and it's ecological resilience. Mm-hmm. If you've got to be looking at all three, you've got to be weaving all three, or the notion is meaningless. Our guests today are Kathy Sullivan, the administrator of NOAA, Hunter Cutting with Climate Nexus, and Louise Bedsworth is an advisor to California Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, I would like to talk about migration. Uh, Kathy Sullivan, do we know how weather patterns may affect migration? I interviewed someone who used to work at the Center for Disease Control. He predicted that people would move from Arizona back to Michigan, that this, this migration we've seen to the Sun Belt in recent decades would be reversed as Americans move towards cooler temperatures. Is that something that's on your radar at NOAA? Uh, you know, a number of migration patterns are on, uh, let me say, the national radar screen in this regard. Um, disease patterns are migrating. The hay fever fever seasons have already expanded by up to 26 days through the central and northern tier and up into the Canadian provinces. Anyone who's a gardener has watched the plant hardiness zones march north year over year as the annual planting guides came out. Uh, Wildlife biologists can walk through a 
a list of species that are arriving sooner, leaving later, shortened seasons. That's being observed all around the globe. Uh, Human migrations are also being observed and are very much a concern of national security officials uh, in many, many, many countries. There's a study just out uh, reported in Eclipse today um, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that makes a very compelling case. It's probably the clearest case. Uh, And this goes back to my airline accident analogy Mm -hmm. of earlier, that the unrest we're seeing in Syria and the Middle East is at least in part... I emphasize at least in part fostered or, or catalyzed by climate change. You have severe drought for a number of years in a rural area with increasing food security, a flood of people to cities, government cities not able to handle them and provide the basic security and, and well-being, weak government responses, erosion of confidence. It, it's a slow unraveling and climate drought is not the only factor, but it you know, contributes to that. And in the last five years, there have been at least a half a dozen different studies out of Europe, after the, out of the Defense Science Board, out of the Marine Military Advisory Board, out of the ASEAN nations, uh, raising the point that a next consequence that the countries of the world need to take care of is the destabilizing of populations and the, the movement of people, both climate refugees and large populations, but also triggering the kind of humanitarian responses that we maybe see after a big typhoon, but having them sort of chronically happening. And the U.S. Marines are preparing for those sorts of things. They're often the first, the first ones yeah. in. Here, closer to home, uh, American taxpayers paid about $60 billion after Hurricane Sandy. Uh, I've interviewed a couple of governors who said that that cannot continue indefinitely. At some point, Uncle Sam's not going to be able to bail out states after some really big storms. Uh, Kathy Sullivan, let's have, then let's hear from Luis uh, about California's response. But first, uh, can you anticipate these things getting so big that they break the bank. You know, it's partly, it's a little bit how big do they get, it's a little bit how frequent, what the intensity and frequency hurricanes will be under warming is a sort of right on the edge of, of what the science can give us insight about. But it's still that value at risk that is the net thing. Americans and globally humans are concentrating in coastal zones. More than 40% of the global population and a similar number of Americans live in our coastal zones. So there's more of us at risk there's more built infrastructure, there's more economic infrastructure at risk. I think the current number for the United States is something like $39 trillion of asset value in coastal zones. Uh, Mike Bloomberg and Hank Paulson and Tom Steyer in the, their Risky Business Project report that came out recently run the curves on out. They did their own empirical work uh, about the economic consequence. They said by 2060, 2050, excuse me, the value at risk in American coastal zones could be between $66 billion and $106 billion of asset value at risk. There's a 1 in 20 chance. Again, you're twice as likely to get melanoma as this. Thanks There's for reminding in, us of that. Yeah. One, in 20, <laughs> 1 in 20 chance that that could be $700 billion asset value at risk. A Sandy, a Katrina moving through you know, inopportune swath of our coastal zone could really, you know, really, really wipe out insurance. I mean, Andrew wiped out insurance companies in Florida. So the reinsurance companies, the guys that insure the insurance companies, uh, they're the guys you transfer your risk to. They're among the folks really raising the warning signs here and trying to find ways to push on governments to price this risk 
more accurately and take account of it. There's a perception that California doesn't have to worry about things so bad. We don't have hurricanes. Uh, Louise Bedsworth, are we okay in California? Maybe fires, but we don't have those bad hurricanes back, back east. And is California planning on a bailout from Uncle Sam if it does happen? Got a governor who doesn't like taxes. It's pretty right. tight. No, I mean, I don't think anyone is counting on a bailout. I think um, California certainly has risk. We have rising sea levels, a tremendous amount of infrastructure along the coast in California, too. In the Bay Area, you know, you can look at the maps and see our major airports at risk, our port. Um, so we have a tremendous, you know, we have a lot of assets along the coast as well. We have a lot of areas at risk from wildfire, extreme heat. Um, I think what we're really trying to do is think about how do we build and design and prepare for the risk that we face. And I think California has a good example in that we also have all these assets in high-risk seismic zones. I mean, San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, you know, we live with risk. And so I think we have to start thinking more about how we build future climate risk and these other risks into our planning and development. And so thinking about ensuring that you're you know, protected from rising sea levels, you're um, energy efficient, you're water efficient, you're building in compact patterns that reduce stresses on the environment and then are also more resilient. You know, these are the types of things that we are starting to really and have been focusing on, I think, for a long time to help us mitigate that risk. Craig, can I touch on one other point? These, you know, the acute risks, the storm, the earthquake, again, those are easier for us all to focus on. In a warming atmosphere, and the National Climate Assessment, as well as the Risky Business Project, show that projections of temperature variations we expect to see in the southwest, for example, many regions of the American southwest that now see you know, days, tens of days of temperatures above 95 degrees, can expect by, by mid-century to conceivably be seeing months months out of the year which the temperatures remain above 95 degrees and the nighttime lows don't get so low anymore and so there's a you know there's a creeping factor to think about here too that if you get very high high daytime temperatures and not much relief at night uh, the product just labor productivity losses again the risky business report you know mm-hmm. the Hank Paulsons and Mike Bloomberg's of the world their analysis suggests that in parts of the midwest and the southwest the productivity loss, labor productivity loss, and hit on our economy just from the chronic backdrop of heat could rival the productivity slowdown that was seen in the 1970s. So, you know, could we get punched in the face with a bad event that really has got a devastating economic blow? Yeah. But what about also just mm-hmm. sucking the air out of the balloon as the effectiveness of our workforce and our economy winds down because of progressive heat stress? Hunter Cunning, bring us out of this funk. What's the upside? (laughs) Well, one of the very interesting things I think about this whole issue is um, it's it's actually not a scientific problem. Um, Thanks to the work of scientists, we're actually pretty clear what causes global warming. I mean, they've got it down to a, you know, I mean, there's a little tiny fuzz about exactly how sensitive the atmosphere is, but there's no big mysteries. So it's, it's not a scientific problem. And what I think is very interesting that's also sort of become very clear in the last eh, five years or so, it's not an economic problem. What we're really talking about is moving our economy from a fossil fuel economy to a renewable energy economy. And the cost to that is is marginal at best. What it does mean is that we're going to have to change the direction of investment in a radically new 
direction. But we're not going to have to have a radically increasing scale, the amount of investment, right? Um, in many places in this country, solar power is already cost competitive um, at the utility scale level. And, and better than cost competitive, it's cheaper if you put it on your rooftop. So um, it's, it's just not a huge economic challenge. But changing the direction of those investments is a huge political challenge. And so I think when we talk about it being the greatest challenge mankind has ever faced, you keep hearing that phrase all the time, it's not uh, a, a scientific challenge. It's not the greatest scientific challenge. It's not the greatest economic challenge. But it is a pretty significant political challenge. But one of the very interesting things I think about political challenges, and there's actually a line, another line that I brought from the scientists, politics is what you call nonlinear. It can change on a dime. Um, I just think recently our own political history in the United States, I can remember... It was just unthinkable that we would elect uh, an African-American as president. It just wasn't even politically viable, and that happened overnight. And so I think our ability to change the politics, I'm very confident about, especially when it's in our economic interest, um, not just to avoid the cost of climate change, but to reap the, the fact that clean energy is actually the cheaper road forward. Um, but we have to change the politics to get there. And I feel a lot more confident in our ability to do that than to solve scientific mysteries or overcome <laughs> huge economic challenges. So, for what it's worth. Kathy Sullivan, uh, one of the uh, episodes of the current House of Cards show on HBO, or actually it's on Netflix, uh, there's a hurricane called Hurricane Faith that changes the politics in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, so whether it's real or on TV, do you see the prospect for changing the politics on climate in Washington? I think over time, and, and yes, punctuation kinds of events can really speed up, really accelerate change. Um, I do think over time it will change. I think the mounting events, mounting evidence, um, more and more clamor from more and more people who are experiencing different trends and changes in their uh, in their home environment, in their business, and are hungry for information about what's coming ahead. I, I think we're slowly seeing that beginning to happen. I think some of the polling data even shows a shift in the, the general public view across the country since even five or ten years ago. One of the things that we might need to do uh, to rise to this climate opportunity is to get more women involved in STEMs, uh, science, technology, engineering, math. So I'd like to ask the two women PhDs up here, uh, Louise Bedsworth, you know, how to get more women in science to work on solutions to these things. Well, I think um, when I was an undergraduate and I was studying this, actually, um, and I was at MIT, and one-third of my class was women, in environmental engineering, 50% of us were women. I take that as a good sign that we're moving in the right direction. So, Kathy Sullivan? Um, I would agree that they're slow trends, but very encouraging <laughs> yeah. trends. Um, and I would jump on what Hunter said. Yes, we need... We need a good scientific cadre in this country. We're a science and technology society. But to move this needle, we really need a wider range of participation of science-attuned and science-informed people in the policy and the economic and the business arena as well. You're not going to solve this by enriching you know, the ghetto of science. You're going to solve this by changing the national equation on multiple fronts. And I guess I would also say I think California has a very good story 
in terms of we have invested, and it started, you know, before climate change when we started addressing air pollution ahead of, you know, leading the country on it. California has a really good story to show the success you can have on cleaning the environment. We have a strong economy. When we look at, um, you know, clean technology investments, and given all the different ways people define it, California leads on that, on patenting activity. Um, and so I do think we have, um, you know, a very and very low emissions per unit of GDP and energy use per unit GDP in California. And so I think um, there are very positive stories that you can tell, and it doesn't have to be an either-or. And I think California has shown over the last several decades you can do both. And I think as we look forward to um, continuing to reduce emissions uh, to 2030 and 2050, that's the path we want to stay on in California, and that's really what we're trying to drive towards as we look over the next several decades. Luis Bedsworth is an advisor to California Governor Jerry Brown. Our other guest today at Climate One are Kathy Sullivan, the administrator of NOAA, and Hunter Cutting with Climate Nexus, a nonprofit PR firm. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. We're going to take a brief break, and we will be right back. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Hurricane Sandy was one of the most destructive of U.S. weather events in recent years, but the rest of the country is also dealing with costly devastation in the form of floods, drought, and other weather extremes. When former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman joined us in 2013, she talked about what lessons other states can learn from Sandy and its aftermath. Even for people who want to argue over, is it climate change, or do humans have an impact on it, at least they've got to start thinking about, well, something is happening and we've got to start preparing for it because part of what drives up the cost of the forest fires and of things like the floods uh, and the superstorm Sandy is the fact that we're building in places where we haven't built before, particularly in, in states like Colorado in the West, but also along the shore we're rebuilding in communities. They've been there for a long time. I understand how difficult it is to take on this issue, but we're going to have to look at should we be rebuilding in some of the places that we're rebuilding, and if so, do we do it in a different way? The local people get it, and that's why the states are the laboratories of democracy, because governors have to deliver, and we see it happening and we have to pay for it, and so the governors tend to, to step up where the federal government doesn't and say, this is how we're going to address this issue. That was former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman speaking with Climate One in 2013. This has been a Climate One Minute. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. We're back at Climate One. We're talking about weather and climate. Uh, let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, my name is Gary Latshaw. I come from Cupertino, which is south of here in Santa Clara Valley. Right now, and the question is, what can the governor's office do to get our public servants to understand both the severity and, and how far we have to go? Because we're going through, should we widen this highway, um, put in golf courses? I mean, it's absurd in the, in the context we've been talking about. When's your boss, uh, Louise Bedsworth, going to crack the whip on the local uh, governments? Well, I think what we're really trying to do is work to provide guidance and tools with up-to-date information to local governments. Most of those decisions fall to a city or a county, a land-use decision. Um, We've developed uh, tools that 
can provide climate change information at a local level. I think more importantly, and this is getting probably more into the weeds than most people would like, is very soon doing a comprehensive update to the general plan guidelines, which is the guidelines every city and county follows to develop their long-term plan. They haven't been updated comprehensively in over a decade. And that's going to be coming down to cities and counties, and climate change is integrated throughout that. We've been working closely with other state agencies on it. Um, you know, it's, it's a long process of both working across our state agencies and then trying to provide information down to the local level. So I think it's the citizens maybe more than the governor that's going <laughs> to prod those local uh, agencies. Uh, let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you for that question. Um, I have a question about adaptation versus mitigation. I know we have to adapt, but is it somewhat misleading to imagine that we can and how far ahead are we projecting in, in this conversation? And I'm curious what projections NOAA is using. And is there how much climate change is already baked into the equation? And is it maybe it's akin to the duck and cover of the early Cold War to tell people that we can adapt? Kathy Sullivan. Uh, thanks. Um, so the, you know, the conventional usage in Washington is that mitigation speaks to mitigating or reducing CO2 emissions and slow, slow the warming and aim would be avert, uh, avert certain temperature extremes. Adaptation, yes. I mean, there's already enough shifting of the, the patterns and the norms that we're accustomed to cl in the climate sense that we have to look at adapting business practices, land use practices to a different set of normals. I wouldn't relegate it to duck and cover status because I think adapting in the sense of learning how to make our designs, our societies more resilient, better able to weather, better able to withstand disruptions, whatever may induce them, uh, has good prospect of mitigating the consequence of whatever we might face. So I, I think it is valid to work on adaptation. At NOAA, we, uh, we oversee the synthesis of, of research that becomes the every four years national climate assessment, the last one just came out last year. And we rely on those scenarios. Uh, and globally, we check those against the international scenarios that are done by the, the IPCC panel. That is, that is the best synthesis of the scientific data and the models. It's, it's a critical synthesis. It's not a roll-up-your-friends-science kind of thing. It really is a very demanding, challenging process to confirm and vet the quality and the caliber of the science underlying these projections. They're the best we've got. And Hunter Cutting, you think that Californians and Americans and humans are very adaptive, and we, we're good at this. We are good at change. It's, it's the, one of the signature characteristics of our species. It's, it's definitely part of the American fabric and the culture is that we, we are very adaptable. Um, American ingenuity is not just a buzzword. It's, 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 you can watch the last 200 years of our history and see it in action. So um, I think, you know, it's a bit of a balancing act, right? We're going to have to mitigate. We're going to have to reduce emissions to avoid the catastrophic changes. And, and they're catastrophic, the, the temperature increase that we will see may not sound like much, like 8 degrees may not sound like much, but that's about the amount of temperature change that we saw that ended the last ice age and would have crocodiles living in the Arctic. I mean, so we, we really don't want to go there. Uh, you know, 2 degrees of temperature change, people have talked about, a lot of people have put that out there as um, safe, although you could talk to the residents of 
uh, Sandy Hook and ask them if they felt it was already been safe. But we, that we can do. We can adapt to that much. Um, it's doable. So I think we have to do both. You have to yep. mitigate to avoid the catastrophic and adapt to what we can avoid. It, adaptation is just going to be part of what we do now going forward in the future. And I would say there are things, it's not an either or. There are a lot of things you can do that do both, and that's really important. I mean, in California in particular, water efficiency, energy efficiency, a lot of natural lands management, things like that. You know, it, it, all of these activities are not, don't fall into one column or the other, and I think really focusing on trying to do these ones that will do both is, is really important. Geoengineering is one idea that if this gets so bad that we ought to run for the switch on the wall, break the glass, and pull the lever. And uh, Kathy Sullivan, recently the National Academies said that research should be done into possibly doing this with tampering on a global scale with the atmosphere to buy some time to deflect some heat. Your view on that? I have to disagree with the Academy on that one. I think uh, certainly continuing to do research to understand the interlinkages of our planetary systems, yes. But I would say right now we have so little understanding of what dominoes we would be knocking over as we did any of those things. Um, And talk about spiritual and moral and other quandaries there. Uh, So I find it inconvenient to have a hurricane bearing down on Florida. I'm going to figure out a way to quash the hurricane. Hurricanes exist on the planet as a means of distributing heat and moisture through the entire atmosphere so that the atmosphere works the way it does and creates the vegetation and other patterns that societies through all the latitudes and all the continents presume upon and depend upon. So am I really entitled? Am I really entitled to turn that switch off and just glibly not care about what that does to mid-latitude water balances and mid-latitude crop production and the food security of people depending on all of that? The dominoes may not fall for five or ten or many, many years after. Is it just... I got mine, I was protected from the hurricane, I'm really happy, and it doesn't matter. There's some, also some very serious governance questions about what group of humans would you trust to kind of have their, their hands on that kind of switch of that technology. And, uh, Climate One will be doing a program coming up this spring with Ken Caldera from Stanford and some other experts looking at hacking the climate and that, that scenario and that, that research. Uh, before we wrap up here, I want to ask about something we haven't touched on, which is uh, the food impacts. And Louise Bedsworth, uh, the things we've been talking about, water, uh, stress, and changing temperatures can affect California's food production. What's the future of the fruit and salad bowl of the country? Um, well, certainly we have already observed uh, changes in the climate that are affecting um, chill hours, which is an important metric for certain um, tree crops that we have in California, we're seeing decline in those chill hours in the Central Valley. Um, Important for wine? Yes, um, obviously the drought has had a huge impact on agriculture as well. Um, We see projections that show where certain grapes will move to grow in the future. Um, So certainly, without a doubt, there's going to be impacts. And I think there's a lot of conversation that's been happening that's been coordinated by the Department of Food and Agriculture in California that's been very productive, engaging um, specialty crop uh, farmers on this topic, and um, a lot of investment that is going into getting a better handle on and understanding the changes and helping to create tools to support decision-making and, you know, how we need to move forward to preserve that industry in California. Kathy Sullivan, food trends in America. We're going to see corn grown up in the Arctic or Canada. 
The prospect is certainly there, as I said, in the flowering plants, everybody's garden mm-hmm. realm. We've certainly seen the plant hardiness zones grow. I'll harken back again to the Risky Business Project, which just about a week ago put a second volume out focused on the Midwest and looks at the what the potential impact on crop yields might be. Uh, and again, it's the disruption factor. So I, my hometown is actually in Ohio, and farmers there are already seeing rainfall pattern changes that are affecting the viability of certain crops that have long grown there. Several generations of a family could count on that rotation for their for their crop uh, and their farming, and the pattern is shifting. So it's at least a disruption for that family business and concern. Maybe it helps the guys further north in Michigan, but but we should not underestimate. Uh, not underestimate the challenge of a nation, of a body politic, of a people navigating through these disruptions that touch on things like the security and reliability of your water supply, the security and reliability of your food supply. Even if numerically the economic consequence should wash out quickly, the human and social consequence uh, and the challenge that poses to the fabric of society, I think we should just bear in mind. As we wrap up here, we're going to end uh, by asking each of you uh, two things. One is, what are you doing to reduce your carbon footprint yourself? It might include water in there. And also, what gives you hope? Hunter Cutting, what are you doing to reduce your own carbon, and what gives you hope? Well, uh, I, uh, I want to put solar panels on my house. Um, I, what took you so long? I, you know, it's a good question. They've gotten cheap. They've gotten dirt cheap. <laughs> That's the thing. Um, and also, quite frankly... Uh, I know I wouldn't say I'd say anything political, but I just feel like uh, the energy industry in the United States is not helping us with the changes we need to make. And so if I'm going to take some power and put the panels on my roof and produce my own power, maybe that'll help change the politics around the energy sector you as well. stick it to the utility, okay? And hope. <laughs> um, hope? It's cheap. <laughs> Kathy Sullivan? Um, both related. There, there are really easy victories out there. Uh, personal energy use efficiency is a really easy victory. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit, easy to gain, good practical payback terms, uh, things like that. And um, what gives me hope? I think the, you know, the passion so many people have for Earth and preserving it, and the ingenuity of humankind. Louise Bedsworth. Um, well, I guess I'll take advantage of the good weather we have. I've really been wanting to ride my bike more than uh, instead of driving, so do that and uh, you know, taking transit more than I do. Um, in terms of hope, I would say similar. I think uh, I've had the opportunity to be around a lot of California over the last year, and there's just amazing things happening in almost every community. It's very diverse, and every community is unique, but I was excited to see so many cool things happening and I think just the people that are working on this topic are have great ideas and a lot of enthusiasm so that gives me hope I'm Greg Dalton I get hope uh, when I listen to San Francisco Giants baseball games on AM radio and I hear advertising for solar uh, uh, rooftop solar which means that Joe Sixpack is getting in on solar (laughs) and that's a good sign for shaping the culture it's even better when the Giants are winning we have to end it there Uh, our thanks to Louise Bedsworth Deputy Director of the California Governor's Office of Planning and Research Kathy Sullivan is Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and Hunter Cutting is Director of strategic communication at Climate Nexus. You can follow the conversation on Twitter and listen to a podcast of this and other Climate One programs in the iTunes store. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and on air and online. Thanks for coming and joining us. Mm 
Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Thank you.